Gather round, one and all, and listen to tales of excitement and adventure. Tales of daring heroes, savage monsters, and bards who just couldn't keep it in their pants. Tales of friendship, nobility, drunken foolishness, and unforgettable fun. These are tales of role-playing games, fair listeners, and this is Rollin' Bones. My name is Ryan Howard, and I shall be your guide. Good evening, Boneheads, and welcome to Rollin' Bones with Ryan Howard, your source for the best in RPG interviews. My name is Ryan Howard, I'm your host and king of the Boneheads, and joining me this evening, uh, kind of a last-minute, pulled-together interview here, uh, because Jim's got something he wants to share with everyone as far as a uh, Kickstarter campaign coming to a close, but I'm bearing the lead here because, ladies and gentlemen, we have the creator of Mutant Crawl Classics, the legendary Jim Wampler. Jim, welcome to Rolling Bones. Thank you for having me on, Ryan. No problem at all. Uh, thank you for uh, for agreeing to come on uh, so quickly. I thought when I sent you that message, you know, we'd be scheduling something for April, but you were ready to go right now, and that is awesome. It was just synchronicity. I came out of Gary Khan without anything to do today. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I guess thank you, Sting, for that synchronicity. Yeah, or Carl Young, one or of the Carl two. Carl Young. Absolutely. All right, so uh, Jim, we're going to kick this off the same way we kick off every single episode of uh, Rolling Bones when we have a new guest on. I've got these questions. Everyone gets asked, so... Let's begin at the beginning. How did you find yourself in the world of RPGs? Well, as the beard would indicate, I'm a, I'm a mature gamer. So I started in uh, 1979. Um, I grew up in uh, rural Kentucky. So uh, although I was of age to play D&D much earlier, D&D didn't penetrate to Frankfort, Kentucky. And I found it in college where I met a bunch of guys in 1979 that had been running D&D for years they, from a big pile of uh, little brown books, dragon magazines, and the AD&D books, which were just coming out at the time. And I think my first four purchases over the course of that year were the Player's Handbook, the Monster Manual, the Dungeon Master's Guide, and the Game World box set. So there it is. That's what I imprinted on right at the start, and a lot of why I do what I do today. Gotcha. The post-apocalyptic game system and and, uh, genre mashing the fantasy and the science fiction together. I love it. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I have to ask, because you're from that same part of the world, did you run into Larry Elmore before he became Larry Elmore, shall we say, or, or did, did you not have any run-ins with him? Uh, I went to college a few times, and D&D is one of the reasons I flunked out as a young man, but when I went back for real to go to art school was about the time Larry was getting famous, and uh, I went to the University of Louisville, and I can remember seeing Larry on the news riding his motorcycle into the news studio to be interviewed <laughs> for something, but gotcha. I didn't know him until much later. Gotcha. But yeah, there's, uh, uh, there's a, a really good uh, indie game designer and publisher named James V. West. He's from Kentucky. I don't know 
what's in the water down there, except uh, when you're growing up there, there's not a lot else to do. Yeah, I mean, I've I've talked a little bit with a couple people. Casey Christofferson actually had a couple of, uh, of cool insights about this. There's something about growing up in a place with kind of, you know, lots of wide open spaces and not a lot of stuff to do that really gets the imagination flowing and really kind of powers, uh, you know, what we value as gamers. So there's definitely something to it. The joy of starting in 79 was that was pre-Satanic Panic, which wouldn't have phased my mother anyway, because uh, she was just perfectly happy. We were all sitting in the kitchen table, and she knew what we were doing, mm-hmm. instead of out running the streets, causing trouble. Absolutely. And of course, I do have to uh, raise my glass of Kentucky bourbon here to a fellow, <laughs> a fellow Southern gamer. I'm in Nashville, Tennessee myself, so. Oh, I have family down there. Nashville's a great town. Absolutely. But yes, it's it's always great to uh, to connect with fellow Southern gamers um, because a lot of people forget about us. It's 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 kind of interesting when I compare and contrast because I'm a, a co-host on the uh, Save for Half uh, podcast, and uh, all four of us started the same year, but they were like twelve, and mm-hmm. I was eighteen or nineteen. So uh, I missed a lot of the, the, the stereotypes. Our, our group in college had plenty of girls in it, um, plenty of diversity. That's just how we started because we were all in school together. Hmm. Nobody cared. Yeah, I mean, I, I also started playing in college, and it was, it was a similar experience for me where we had, uh, like, my first uh, GM was actually a, a Muslim guy, Muhammad, and he... Uh, really kind of taught me everything that I now know about the game, how to GM and everything. We had all kinds of different people because, again, we were all college kids, and we were all right there in in Charlotte, North Carolina. So, uh, you know, we just got together and and played together for like four years. We got pretty swept up in it and started evangelizing it. The Dungeons & Dragons penetrated Franklin County High School in Kentucky by virtue of me giving the Holmes basic set to my brother that Christmas. And nice. he took it back to our high school. Next thing you know, somebody's granny aunt who runs a yarn shop downtown Frankfurt, the Busy Bee is carrying, you know, Dragon Magazine and Grenadier Minis and all the books. <laughs> nice. So for the next question, uh, I will put a caveat on this one. Uh, you can't say one of your own games that you've designed, but other than your own games, what's kind of your favorite system of all time? Uh, I mean, currently it's absolutely Dungeon Crawl Classics. Um, I I uh, was a lapsed gamer for a period, as many are. In my case, I was off doing a tech startup with my brother and was ready to get back in and looking around. And it's no bang on anybody else. But, you know, I was, this was, I don't know, eight or nine years ago, checking out uh, Castles and Crusades, uh, Pathfinder, uh, the uh, we had played fourth edition D&D, so I knew that wasn't going to be my cup of tea. And uh, uh, at a Gary Con, met Michael Curtis and through him uh, and a playtester local to Cincinnati that was running a DCC playtest, found Dungeon Crawl Classics. And what was what struck me about it is uh, I immediately felt the need to evangelize the system. I, I thought that was a one, you know, it's like the first girl you fall in love with. Mm-hmm. It's never going to be like that again. And it was suddenly. But, uh, I, you know, I, it, it, with a good group of people, I'll sit down and play anything. Gotcha. So, uh, back in the college days, uh, you know, when you were first starting out, 
Uh, if you can't remember the very first character, that's okay. Uh, but who was your first character or your first memorable character that you ended up bringing to the table? Oh, uh, you know, my first DM said, okay, you're going to roll up two characters to start. And I'm like, why am I rolling up two? And he's like, you'll find out. <laughs> so, uh, you know, Fred the Mage stepped on a thorn and died immediately. And my first real character became um, uh, Flavin, son of Ribo, who was a bard the hard way. You know, five levels of thief, five levels of fighter, and then, uh, then on to bard. Oh, so ironically, oh, my first, even though I'm infamous for playing spellcasters now, my first uh, character had to wait 10 levels to throw a spell. Flavin, son of Ribo. Well, you know, <laughs> we were young. So, someone out there is, is going to have to think about that for a second. But yeah, that's that's fantastic. I still have his little Grenadier mini that I painted with tester's paints like everybody did stupidly the first two or three times. Mm-hmm. I even, I painted my first mini three years ago, and I even for the first time used the tester's paints, which was a mistake. Oh. So, no, oh, but such a tradition. You're, you're in good company. I mean, Jolly Blackburn, we trade stories like that all the time. Yeah. Uh, for anyone out there, we just did a whole miniature painting thing last week, but for anyone out there uh, thinking about getting into it, don't buy testers. Vallejo, Reaper, they've all got good sets out there. Even Army Painter, if you're desperate, uh, just don't buy the tester stuff. You'll regret it immediately. So, Jim, a lot of people who come on the show, uh, you know, especially designers, kind of end up in the DM's chair forever. And a lot of people who end up in the GM's chair forever develop these NPCs that they like to bring from game to game. So do you have any forever NPCs, any characters who will always pop up to aid whatever party you're running for? I run so many convention games now. I'm trying to think the last really good long campaign was the playtest campaign where we developed mutant Call classics here at a local game shop, uh, 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 gateway games and more. And uh, my players chewed through the NPCs. I didn't really have a recurring NPC in that campaign. Um, I'm I'm good at in other people's campaigns of being the 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 player that you know. Okay, he's dead now. No, a couple years later, the DM brings him back because they just need a spellcaster that'll do insane things. Gotcha. So a lot of your players are just like, oh, shopkeeper. He's dead now. Well, when we first got into Dungeon Crawl Classics, we uh, it took us so long to get the hang of the rule set that uh, we depopulated our home village by about <laughs> 45%. We killed 47 level zeros getting through Harley Stroh's Sailor of the Starless Seas the first time. Oh, my God. Because we were uh, we'd misread some rules. That's great. Some of these... How familiar are you with The Witcher uh, franchise, TV show, books, any of that? I, I've not seen or read any of it, but in general. Henry Cavill, right? Yeah. Yeah, so the the main character of that show, Geralt of Rivia, he's known as the Butcher of Blaviken because through certain circumstances, he ended up slaughtering most of the population, if not the entire population of a town called Blaviken. And... Every like when I saw that show, when I read the story for the first time, 
of him doing that, all I could think was how many D&D campaigns have a whole party full of butchers of Blaviken? Well, I mean, because the group I came up under were all ex-war gamers, we were murder hobos through and through in the day. And um, I don't have to play that way, but that's still one of my styles. I did the, I, uh, in the name of self-care, uh, committed to a campaign recently as a player. And you know, you know how it starts. I'm going to get into game design, then I'll game all the time. Well, it doesn't ever work <laughs> out that way. And then, like you said, you'll if you're the designer, a designer cat, you'll end up running all the games well this is a game run by skeeter green i know you know him oh yeah with uh the adult players are me uh ian mcgarty and uh, rocky gardner and their two of their 10 year old children uh 10 year old boy hansen and a 10 year old girl uh siobhan and the party has quickly factioned into me and the 10 year olds <laughs> on one side because we just want to slit everything's throat and steal their stuff <laughs> i love it i love it that's great. You don't have to teach a 10-year-old how to murder hobo. It just mm-hmm. comes natural. Oh, yeah. I've got two friends who kind of started this whole uh, after-school program where they're running an RPG made for kids, uh, like for school groups. And it's a, a lot of those instincts are just present when, when you bring something like that to the table. Those kids are a joy to play with. I mean, like, you know how it goes in modern 21st century. It's supposed to be a weekly game, but life happens Mm -hmm. and uh you know if ian or rocky can't play i'm still in but if one if the 10 year olds can't play i'm out (laughs) absolutely so you've hinted at it a little bit uh you know talking about kind of the murder hobo stuff that you uh you grew up with but if you had to describe your play style as a uh, a gm when you're running games how would you uh describe that uh, old school in the sense that uh, don't ask me if you can do something. I mean, it's not like I'll get mad. I'll just say, well, you can try anything. Uh, you tell me. You know, your job is to sell me on what you want to do, and then we'll figure out some dice rolls and go from there. But uh, it's um, I will I will be completely uh, open and honest about this. The, the 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 trick is to maintain the illusion that you're a killer DM, only because it increases the drama. I roll my dice right out in front of the screen, so there's no doubt on whether or not I'm fudging things. Plus, I'm old and savvy enough. I can put modifiers on it and still fudge a dice roll in front of the screen. So, you know, I, uh, but as far as the, you know, at a con game, I just try and suss out the table. You know, if they want to murder Hobo and blow the reactor, that's fine with me. If they want to be very thoughtful and talk to every NPC, I'll do as many voices as I can. They'll all sound like old Hanna-Barbera cartoons, but. I want to go. With, I, I want to go with the flow. I, the, the 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 key difference I noticed is in the in the early MCC days. I had to watch play testing with my home group because they'd become very accustomed to me, and I'd become very accustomed to them. And it was take no prisoner style back and forth, which sounds adversarial, but it's 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 not not in the way people get into flame wars about. It was fun, you know, just who can outsmart who. Um, I love that part of it, but you know, they would take second level characters and sail through an adventure. I'd run into a convention that needed to be a third or fourth level adventure hmm. for publication. My, my wife, Elfie in chat here is, uh, is asking for an example of a Hanna-Barbera character voice that you do well. Uh, so if you want to feel free, if you don't, I understand. Oh dear Lord. No one <laughs> under 40 is even going to know who I'm doing. 
and I'm not sure my throat's in the shape for it. <coughs> Equix, I don't think so. I'll do the thinning around here, Bubbaloo, and don't you forget it. There you go. There you go. Mrs. Howard. <laughs> Absolutely. So let's... I wish I could do Futurama voices, but Billy West has got a vocal box like a lute. You mm-hmm. can't. I can't. I can't do those. Absolutely. Elfie enjoyed it. So there there you go. We're, we're good to go in that regard. Um, and yes, B- Billy West is an amazing talent. Um, one of my favorite things in the world, and I can't find it for the life of me, was him on a panel with a bunch of other voice actors reading the script to Star Wars in different voices they'd all done throughout their career. I love those. And, like, the, the thing about a cartoon voice panel is if anybody doesn't show up, you just get Billy. He can do it. Yeah. Whoever was the original voice. Hmm. Absolutely. It, it was <laughs> Yakko and Wacko Warner from the Animaniacs as uh, Grand Moff Tarkin and one of the other uh, Imperial <laughs> Generals and all kinds of great stuff like that. Um. You know, GM style, I just want to entertain and have fun, and I got to have fun too. So mm-hmm. I do my best. I've, I've cribbed my style just by watching all the, the GMs and DMs that I admire. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Steal their, steal their, swipe their stuff. Mm-hmm. And before we move on to the next question, I mean, there there is a, an absolute valid point, and I pick up on this because this is something that I struggle with as a GM myself. Uh, the idea that don't ask me what you can do, sell me on what you're trying to do, that's something I need to be better at as a GM because so often my players will ask me, can I do X, Y, or Z? And I will think and I'll look at the rule book rather than going, you know, what, what's your plan thinking of, you know, this is the role that that I would need from you or, you know, just saying, all right, make a role for it. Uh, it, It's it's more just kind of me consulting the sacred text than me going with the flow. And so I think that's valuable advice for anyone, no matter what system you're running, honestly, is just to uh, let your players make their case. And then once you've heard the case uh, as the GM, you should know kind of what roles they'll need to make for it. John Peterson just wrote a wonderful book that was published back in December about this called The Elusive Shift. And every game designer on the planet should read this book because it's a, a it's a very scholarly journalistic work with uh, where he's not telling you what he thinks. He's just citing, OK, here's the history of how this game became a phenomenon. And this is one of the topics that he that they that they look at is how how did this tug and pull back and forth start? And turns out it didn't start with D&D. It, it goes back to wargaming. You know, like, uh, I can't rattle off the games, but, you know, like some hardcore British World War One simulation where there needed to be a, a judge. And how much uh, power did he have? But the, but the trick is just, it's a thing we all understand intuitively. It just people get tripped up on the language. The players have got to have agency. It can't be my show and you're just robots running around and um you uh 
want to just provide them with a sandbox, but sometimes the sandbox needs to go a certain way, and I just try and stay flexible because the everybody's favorite story about stuff is always when things go off the rails. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I'm trying to give trying to think of a specific example. For example, the players will inevitably find the back door to the dungeon somehow, mm-hmm. and and then so I thought, okay, well I'll write one with a back door, and no group would ever find it or go through it. <laughs> so it's that kind of cat and mouse. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And inevitably, you've got the one NPC that you put a bunch of time and dedication into, who's the main quest giver. And they will walk right past him in favor of someone you put there just for extra flavor. Oh, well, yeah, sure. And and some of that's on, on the GM. You've mm-hmm. just got to w- watch out because if you get all eloquent and give him a great voice, now you've planted a Chekhov's gun. And they yeah. think, you know, that the, the pony dealer is the adventure hook or whatever. Absolutely. So... You know, for, for someone who's been gaming as long as you have and someone who ended up going into this and, and doing this professionally, this might be a difficult question because people who dedicate themselves to that degree, to this hobby, have a lot of fond memories tied up with gaming. So if you had to pick kind of a fondest gaming memory, what would that be? Uh, I, I, I won't go back to the old days because those stories are sound horrible now but uh there my my fondest game re- gaming memory is breaking michael curtis's the chain coffin in a play test <laughs> and i had already been i i uh, the rick hall the guy who was the goodman games designated play test runner this this was the game that got me on the you can't play a spellcaster anymore for two years because they'd already cut me off from wizard and elves okay i'll play a cleric and i just ramped up a spell result using the rules and uh broke the whole adventure right the boss fight lit lit him up with a detect evil so so bright we saw him like half a mile away and just got to plan our shots at a distance it was (laughs) terrible stuff like that i enjoy that i mean when um like for poor skeeter you know between skeeter and uh little 10 year old siobhan who does please faces at him you know we work him hard Absolutely. I've always got some crafty shenanigans. And, and knowing Skeeter, I can only imagine the reaction to it. If there weren't a 10-year-old on there, there would probably be lots of middle fingers and F-words. Well, uh, he doesn't do that. I'm usually the one that breaks first in front of the kids. <laughs> but uh, but but he's, he's very, uh, very tough and fair. I mean, mm. it just that- makes me feel sorry for the boyfriend Siobhan's going to have later because she's <laughs> going to work them the same way. That's going to be that. That would definitely be an interesting interplay to to see there because you know Skeeter. Everyone who knows Skeeter knows Skeeter, and if you've seen him on the show, you know that's that's him. Uh, and just seeing someone try to break Skeeter and and try to out Skeeter him in many ways that would be interesting to see. Well, okay. I mean, you're asking me a lot of questions about my preferences, and some of them are playstyle preferences. And there's no right or wrong to that. I want to be really clear. You and I can okay. have a, a very, or anyone can have a very cogent discussion of rules, mechanics, and game engines and game systems. And okay, this simulates that better than that. But playstyle preference is more or less hardwired in all our heads. Uh, but uh, I, you know, just you know, when you can get a fuck you out of the DM, you score. <laughs> Absolutely. 
Those are some of the best moments. I remember uh, my players have definitely gotten that out of me uh, with the Dark Sun game that we're playing. And then uh, I remember the time we got that out of Muhammad. It was the first time I ever had that reaction from a GM. I was... I didn't even know how to take it at first, but I was just like, oh, this is this is what we're chasing. And when the shoe's on the other foot and the player is one shot, you're, you know, you're a kaiju with a hundred bazillion hit points and they figure out how to one shot it in round two. You just got to go. Well done. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, and Elfie in chat, uh, Glitter Bomb was a different kind of fuck you from the GM. That was... That was a, why aren't you taking this seriously, fuck you. Not not a, you broke my world. <laughs> but that that's a story for another time. We'll, we'll get to that someday. Um, well, unless in my jamming style, here's the rule. If you die, it has to be spectacular. Because mm. what do you win in role-playing games? The only thing anybody wins is the story they tell later. So mm. if you... If you are committed to being stupid and blow there needs to be a hundred foot crater and smoke and a meteor from this guy and it you need a story to tell mm-hmm. yeah i mean the glitter bomb thing was they my players were playing lost minds of fandelver from uh fifth edition dungeons and dragons and they found three wolves that were chained up in the first dungeon and they decided to free them but they also decided to name them so uh I don't remember what the other two names were, but one of them was named Glitter Bomb. And as a GM, I was just like, what? What's what? Okay, fine. Next room. (laughs) That was one of our rules from the 70s and 80s is never name your mount. Mm Because as soon as you give a horse a name, next thing you know, it's on fire. Yep. And I was... my, My wife is a huge animal lover. She was in that game, and I was told in no uncertain terms that those wolves were not allowed to die so uh that that was a situation in and of itself well you know you uh there's different kinds of aggros and you do not want to attract wife aggro that's true wife aggro is the worst kind of aggro (laughs) so you play in a lot of convention games of course um so there's a lot of chances to run into this kind of thing but we share the table with all kinds of people. Some of them we love and, you know, enjoy our time with them. Some of them we just don't click with. And the worst of these people, we call them that guy. So if you have one that you're comfortable sharing on the show and don't feel like you have to name any names or anything like that. But if you have a that guy story uh, that is particularly amusing, please uh, go for it. I don't know if I want to call any certain situation out, but yeah, it, uh, amongst me and my little clique of outside smokers on breaks and games, we I call them cowboys. You know, how many cowboys do you get at your table this this time? Mm-hmm. And you know, it happens. My job isn't to circumvent the cowboy. My job is to make sure everyone's having a good time, even the cowboy. Yeah. So I I just have a style where I you know gently redirect and gently redirect. Okay, I do have a story. I'm sorry. <laughs> forgive me at a north texas con uh i had a bad cowboy who just wanted to be one of those guys that runs and f- runs in every room runs in, up to everything first swings first uh touches everything first and i spent most of four hours restraining him until they got to the boss fight and a potential tpk and then i let him off the leash <laughs> 
And sure enough, they, they flew a, a giant head flying temple straight into a mountain and killed everybody except the one guy who said, hey, well, it says on my sheet, I have regeneration. Can I you know, glow burn and max that out right before we hit? And I'm like, sure. And his cells reformed in the crater and he walked away. <laughs> that, that was a pretty good game. Nice. But, you know, it's like trying to direct a parade in Mardi Gras. You've got to get good at that, uh, you know, deflecting and redirecting. And, you know, there's the quiet players. Those are the ones I try and watch out for, or especially if it's a younger, shyer player. You know, you've got to make sure they get their time in the sun and they get you can if you're good. And and I'm not always good, but if you're good, you can you can draw them in. And next thing you know, they're they're, you know, almost the party leader. Absolutely. So last of these introductory questions here, uh, this one has flummoxed a couple people before, and I'll tell you the answer to this question can be as philosophical or as sophomoric as you want it to be. Um, but Jim, if you could put anything on a t-shirt, what would it be? Oh, yeah. Well, not in public. I'm not saying that. Um... <laughs> Oh, you just caught me flat-footed. <laughs> the, uh, the the T-shirts I enjoy, you know, most are all just uh, something funny about gaming. Oh, well, yeah, I've got my favorite coffee mug. I'd like to have a T-shirt that's got Rick from Rick and Morty who says, yes, you're right, let's do this the dumbest way possible because it's easier for you. <laughs> that would be a good T-shirt. Yes, it would. Yes, it would. I'm not... I'd be surprised if someone from that very well merchandised uh, TV show has not slapped that on a t-shirt as well. I love that. I know, I know what Skeeter's answer was. And what's funny about uh, the goddamn Zach t-shirts that he made <laughs> famous at several conventions is I, I am really good friends with Zach Glazer too. And I have a problem where the, those guys don't let me play the trash talk game. They, you know, they get manly and they trash talk each other and I'm not allowed to play because I don't, there's something Sheldon Cooper wrong in my head. I don't understand the rules. I go straight to nukes. <laughs> and, uh, uh, so when they, when skier started those shirts, I was offended. I'm like, Zach's a great guy. Why are you making these shirts? God damn it. Zach, I don't get it. And then I became a partner at frog God games at one point and worked closely with Zach on a lot of projects. And then I got it. <laughs> absolutely and i i will never forget when i brought zach on the show i don't think he knew that i knew about it because i'd had skeeter on before and i dropped that bomb on him and that was a great moment his his perception of that phenomenon is uh fantastic well, I mean, you know, you, you can't argue with the results. It turned into a YouTube channel. So, Absolutely. Cool. So those are kind of the introductory questions. And, uh, you know, before we get into talking about Mutant Crawl Classic or, you know, the, the stuff that led up to that, I want to kick off here real quick with some talk about Scientific Barbarian because we've got... 35 hours to go in the campaign as of the time we're doing this stream. So uh, talk a little bit about what Scientific Barbarian is and uh, what kind of cool stuff people can expect from this third issue. 
Uh, happy to. Scientific Barbarian is a post-apocalyptic role-playing uh, magazine, and magazine just means it's fancier than a magazine, but uh, not as great as a ma magazine. Fancier than a fanzine, so kind of a prozine. I like saying magazine, so I just say magazine. Um, uh, every issue is like 80 pages, and one of the mission statements is to encourage genre mash, and I'm not sure we've lived up to that, so issue three is our start in that where we have a great article by Daniel uh, J. Bishop called You've Got Data Chips in My Elixir. That's a whole article about how to do it. Um, because to some uh, generations of gamers, this is a fantastical new concept when it was baked right into the Dungeon Master's Guide back in the day. I mean, Gary had the rules in the back. Okay, take your players to Boot Hill, take your players to Gamma World. But uh, it's just my little, uh, you know, pale limitation and i say my but it's a whole team of artists and writers um are the main reason it's uh blown up like it has attempt to replicate the good old gaming magazines that we all remember so you know every issue's got new classes new monsters new mutations new spells a whole adventure in every issue comics editorials uh uh, a guy writing um, genre media reviews related to the post-apocalyptic genre that are too good to be in a gaming magazine. I mean, he could have these printed everywhere, but he happens to be a friend of mine and he's letting me print them. Like a critical examination of Zardoz. I sent that thing to Tim Cask. I'm like, this is too good to be in a gaming magazine. And Tim's like, you got that right. Uh, comics like uh, Jolly's doing... Uh, little episodes of Knights at the Dinner Table and Travis Hansen, whose work I adore, uh, Life of the Party, has his own strip in there and uh, Dan Smith. So art, art heavy, uh, super creative stuff. And you could jam that. I mean, if you're running an MCC game or any other D20 based post-apocalyptic game, it's just a steady stream of great content. You can jam in your game and um, you could put that stuff in D&D &D like that. Absolutely. I mean, I mean, you know, you're, I forget the name of the artifact, but in the DMG, the device of Quailish or something. And once you understand what it is, it's a submarine lobster. Yeah, absolutely. I love throwing that thing in there. Just I, the, the last time I used it, the, the players weren't driving it, but there was a seaside strip club for lack of a better term brothel that kind of place and an apparatus of quailish came up out of the water and parked itself right in front of it and a bunch of dwarves got out and went inside well if you'll bear with me i'll explain the the entire line of thinking here because one of the things that caused me to be such an evangelical fan of dungeon crawl classics is what joseph goodman did in that game it was pure genius was figured out a way to strip down D20 to the basics, bolt some new stuff on, and take something that we're all very familiar with and reinvest it with a sense of mystery and suspense. Mm. It, when you run up on an orc or a skeleton or, God help you, a dragon or demon in Dungeon Crawl Classics, it doesn't matter how many decades of D&D you've played. You don't know what that thing is going to do to you. And that's the joy, and that's why Gary and those guys would would do expedition to barrier peaks is because you know okay you fought goblins and boulets and dragons now crawling inside the spaceship what the hell you know you don't suddenly you don't you don't have that familiar grip on the setting and that's that's exciting when you're playing through it yeah absolutely that makes sense yeah 
and and it couldn't have a better pedigree because as we all know D&D was inspired by a lot of the pulp fiction from the 30s and 40s and back then the term science fiction didn't exist you know Edgar Rice Burroughs just wants you know swords and ray guns on another planet or uh, Lovecraft decides the elder gods are all extra dimensional beings from outer space and Conan goes up that temple to fight a god and it's a big elephant alien guy absolutely absolutely yeah that <clears throat> those those fusions of of things that we have now kind of compartmentalized into their own genres uh really does you know harken back to the 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 dna of what gaming ended up being uh that's that's an excellent point and having recently gone back and and you know started my own exploration of robert e howard uh for for very personal reasons um seeing a lot of that fusion even in uh solomon kane you you get a lot of kind of the uh lovecraftian elements of you know beings from beyond the comprehension of of humanity doing all kinds of unspeakable things and there's even some elements of sci-fi uh, especially if you get to something like uh you know uh was it wings in the night where the uh, the pterodactyls show up stuff like that that and and that's all what inspired gary and, and the early guys to you know make what this game is now so uh, yeah, I, I'm right there with you. So that that's a mission statement of uh, uh, scientific barbarian. So if you're you know if you're a D and Der, don't be don't be scared of sticking some some mutants and magic together because that's great. And it's a quarterly publication, which turns out to be the beast that never sleeps, always eats. <laughs> so the the third issue Kickstarter ends um, at 9 a.m. on Wednesday. So you got about. 24 hours to, to jump in and uh, you can for less than a cost from my web store also catch the prior two issues you can collect the whole thing so far I haven't run out of anything not even issue one absolutely and, and I, I kind of stumbled I mean it was you know one of the normal every harebrained scheme a designer has is a great idea when you have it but then it took off and every Kickstarter has been bigger than the one before so I was a little surprised at that, but I am happy to do it because it just checks all my creative boxes. Hmm. It's one of the reasons I'm I'm doing it doing it through my own label. I'm I'm in a point where I'm I couldn't be happier because I'm doing exactly what I want to do. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and if you're a fan of kind of what we've done on the show before, people that we've talked to, uh, just to let you guys know, contributing writers to this thing, uh, Levi's got some stuff in here. Skeeter Green has stuff in here. Uh, artists, Ed Bickford, if you love your robots, he is he is here. Uh, Jolly Blackburn, as, as Jim already mentioned, and several others. Uh, this is really, you know, a great package. A lot of talented people here. Uh, contributing to this thing so uh, you know definitely jump on this and if you miss the first two issues uh, there are packages where you can uh, catch up on them uh, especially in uh, they're, they're available as add-ons right the the first two yeah issues. yeah it's the it's it's the new kickstarter thing i don't even know if they've released it publicly yet but i weaseled my way into the beta you can just add them on in your pledge no no backer kit none of that horsing around just check a box sweet Alrighty. So, 
Now that we know a little bit about, uh, you know, Scientific Barbarian, let's take it back a little bit and uh, talk a little bit about Mutant Crawl Classic and, and kind of where that came from. I know you mentioned Dungeon Crawl Classic and how that kind of pulled you back into the world of gaming. Uh, so, so how do we go from there to developing uh, Mutant Crawl Classic, very much kind of an offshoot of that? Well, I uh, grew up playing a tremendous amount of D&D, but uh, as, as happens when you're young, uh, you know, like my brother was a DM, and I had a couple of college buddies that were the DM. I didn't run uh, D&D so much. And what happened in those days is TSR came out with a series of games and other people too, and our group would tend to take ownership of genres, like Henry was the guy who was going to run Boot Hill for us, and... Kevin was going to run Top Secret. And my second game I bought after D&D was Gamma World. And I started out, as many of us did in the 70s, as a science fiction fan first and became more of a fantasy fan through Dungeons & Dragons rather than prior to. So I naturally uh, glommed on to Gamma World. And I always thought that if Gamma World had gotten the full treatment like D&D did, uh, you know, we'd be on 5th edition Watsy Gamma World with hardback books and endless adventure hardbacks now um then you know that 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 didn't happen and so uh jim ward was my hero growing up and i'm very blessed uh, he's also a, a writing contributor scientific barbarian for me um very uh, uh uh blessed to know him in real life and the uh, uh puppy games back in the aughts published the fourth edition of metamorphosis alpha which awesome. is uh not one of the big ones so um uh that whole genre, I, I'm sorry, I lost the thread of what you actually asked me. I apologize. Oh, just you know. How oh, Mutant Crawl Classics. Yeah. So, so, so with all that, uh, I, I ran a Gamma World campaign for 30 years for my uh, brother and friends, and every edition of Gamma World. And I think at the end we were running Mutant Future as the rule set with one E Gamma World as the setting. And when Dungeon Crawl Classics came out, I immediately leapt to this is the t this is the chance to write the game you always wanted to write. I've got versions of my own versions of Gamma World that I'd written periodically through the years, and uh, started working on it right away. And I was far from the only person to have this idea. So there are other great similar games like uh, Reed Saint Filippo's Umerica, uh, and. Um, Started working on the game and playtesting it and doing all the work you have to do in advance. But meanwhile, I had a problem where I hadn't had anything published uh, like an adventure in decades. So I waited my I'll share this with anybody, anybody that's out there that's looking to break in professionally. I uh, spent maybe two years of conventions pitching Harley and Michael Curtis out on the sidewalk. You know, how about this DCC adventure? How about that? And getting told, no, that was DCCC 32. No, that was number 67. They, we already did that idea. And uh, when Joe Goodman did the uh, Kickstarter for the big deluxe Metamorphosis Alpha hardback coffee table book that had like the reprint inside, um, I watched that Kickstarter until it blew up so big they went one stretch goal past the number of writers I knew they had. And I pitched an adventure. And Joe said, that's great. Can you have it done in 30 days? Write it up. And I got my foot in the door. And then I just uh, had the game maybe 85 or 90 percent done and mutant crawl classics and presented it to him and he bought it awesome next thing i know i'm laying out and designing a whole product line 
Cool. The intention is to write the biggest Valentine in Game World I could. So it's just uh, it's there's no genius to the idea itself. It's just mass smash Game World and Dungeon Crawl Classics together. Absolutely. Now, I know you know, like like you mentioned, you you'd been a lapsed gamer for a little bit. Um, what was it that kind of you know took you? I you mentioned you know going to join a tech startup, but was there anything in the gaming world particular? Uh, that kind of turned you off for a while to gaming that, uh, you know, DCC kind of brought you back into. Was there anything like that or was it just, you know, no time to game? Well, we were joking around about synchronicity. It was just synchronicity that when I was ready to jump back in, that happened to be within a year of uh, Dungeon Crawl Classics debuting. And and, uh, um, whereas I was on, you know, in in the local game stores looking at, other products um that one found me because i met michael curtis at gary con uh, i think my first gary con gary con 4 which would have been about 2012 um so no- nothing drove me out of gaming i mean because in some ways we were hardcore i've played every edition including fifth edition when fourth edition came out first thing my brother i mean that's the lapsed gamer zone but that didn't stop me and my brother and my nephews from going and getting all the books and giving it a run yeah. I just wasn't a regular gamer for a while. You know how it is. I mean, it's, some people it's okay. Now I've got my real job and career. Or I've got kids that have to go to soccer. Um, in my case, uh, I became a web designer, and then my brother and I did a tech startup. Yeah, and and gaming is something that takes a lot of time, and uh, you know some people like to take a lot of time to prepare their games and prepare little details around their games. So, you know, when, when real life steps in, uh, what's kind of the biggest unnecessary time sink that you can cut out for a lot of people that's going to end up being gaming, unfortunately. Well, I mean, I don't want to speak heresy on your show, but you know, real life takes precedence over hobbies. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Absolutely. That's that's part of the dodge is, okay, I'll make this game design thing my career. Now I got to do it. Mm-hmm. Now I'm supposed to. Yeah. yeah absolutely. I, as much as I wish it did, Rolling Dice does not pay the bills for for me. Uh, so, yeah, I, I definitely understand that, uh, you know, getting in the way. Fortunately, that hasn't happened to me just yet. Uh, I, I fear that day, though. Well, I, I'll tell a story I shouldn't tell. I was contacted last week by a gentleman who turns out is the design director for Scientific American Magazine. He sent me a blind Facebook friend request and, and a message, and I almost had a heart attack. I'm like, oh, am I getting a C&D? And no, he's a guy, uh, they, they saw like a Facebook ad or something, and they all think it's great. But then I then I go into gym mode, which is, okay, you're not playing DD anymore. Well, welcome to your new DM, you know, kind of thing. And I start chatting him up and uh, he was like ashamed. No, we had so much fun in college, but I just, you know, I haven't played in 10 or 15 years. I'm like, that's normal. That's standard. Happens to most of us. You, you, you'll know when it's time. It's there anytime you want it. Absolutely. I mean, um, I'm sure you have a comparative uh, set of things, but if you'd have told me when I was 19, in 1980 that in you know later i would be gaming through a computer online anytime i felt like it 
you know, these virtual conventions and Zoom and Roll20 and all that. That's just what I've just said. You're a liar. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, frankly, it's it's amazing how easy it is to find games now. Um, and then with, you know, just the abundance of games out there available online, how hard it is to find that game. Uh, for some people, but yeah, I mean, we we definitely are, um, we definitely are blessed in that regard. That there's you know so much out there that we can just you know consume almost at will, uh, as far as gaming goes. So yeah, I mean, that's... I'm I'm stuck with my seeing the world through my own glasses, but it's an embarrassment of riches, and you know, I struggle with understanding people who have to have a problem with everything because I mean, there's never been a better time to be a gamer and however your taste run, it's out there Hmm. and just game. Yeah, absolutely. Like the, the, the wheelchair adventure that, uh, Watsy just put out, you know, in some areas and some people that's some kind of issue some way. And, uh, you know, Tim Kastner talking about it. I'm like, or, or the, uh, the revision where the different uh, NPC races that are now playable character classes can have their own individual alignments and stuff like that. I mean, uh, however, I would personally design a game or prefer to play it. It's their game now. It's that generation's new game, and they're out there doing new creative stuff. Let them have it. Quit griping about everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's that's one of the beautiful things about this hobby. You know, if you don't like something... Uh, rule zero is always it's up to the dm you know what does and does not happen at the table no matter what system you're playing so you know if you and your friends don't like something uh you know there's tons of other games out there there's tons of revisions that you yourself can make to a game you can just not use whatever rule or whatever thing is in the book uh it's a very freeing experience in that way you just have to you know, have the right mindset when it comes to gaming, you know, just to know that ultimately this is the freest possible hobby that we could ever have because everything that happens happens in our minds and in the dice. So new stuff is exciting stuff. And, and, and you can't invent new things without trying a bunch of stuff. I mean, I don't know, like a specific example for my personal play style preferences, I could probably think hard and give you a, you know, psychiatric diagram of why i almost got addicted to the level zero funnels in dungeon crawl classics where most of your level zeros die constantly i love that and call of cthulhu annoys the holy crap out of me i i can't get into a game where i know i'm going to go insane and my buddy's going to shoot me at the end but so what that's just my preference mm-hmm. some of uh, skeeter is a good one skeeter you know damn adores call of cthulhu and he has a great time why do i care absolutely i'm sorry you got me preaching (laughs) it's all good uh switching gears here a little bit um just kind of as an aside to games uh i i want to ask you a little bit about marvin the mage the uh the the comic that you have here tell (laughs) tell us a little bit about marvin Uh, Marvin the Mage is a lesson and be careful how you design a cartoon character when you're 19 because you may turn into him later. (laughs) Uh, That was just, I was so thrilled with D&D when I first discovered it that being a cartoonist, I went right off and created a strip and tried like hell to get it published. And he's he's barely in a couple issues of Adventure Gaming Magazine in some little single panel cartoons I harassed him cast into printing. Um, 
I uh, revived the idea about that same time when I decided I wanted to get back into gaming. It's like, well, how do I do that? How do I get my feet wet? I know I'll take Marvin the Mage and turn him into a webcomic. And uh, that turned into something that started getting me invited as a guest to Gary Cons. And that's where I started meeting people. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, people uh, harass me now, you know, do some more Marvin the Mage. And I'm like, as soon as I can figure out how Marvin can pay, you know, some bills, I'm all on it. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a it's a great tradition of uh, you know people who create games and stuff to have these you know cartoons that they do. Obviously, you know, Jolly has uh, Knights of the Dinner Table. Uh, there's Snarf Quest from the aforementioned Larry Elmore. So yeah, stuff like this is always kind of fascinating to me. Well, being a fan of that stuff is why there are three regular comic strips in Scientific Barbarian. Because hmm. I, you know, you imprint on what you imprint on. You know, like uh, how everybody's favorite Doctor Who actor usually turns out to be the first one they encounter. Yep. That that will tend to be the case. And so when I imprint it on Dragon Magazine, that's what I want to do now. Hmm. Yep, it's 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 like cigarettes. The, the brand you start with is your favorite. <laughs> Well, even into some of the art direction, uh, some of the books I've self-published myself and Scientific Barbarian are very much about uh, diverse art styles and illustrations because that first monster manual had David Trampier art next to Dave Sutherland art next to Tom Wom art. So there's a guy who's more or less a straight-up cartoonist, a wonderful illustrator, and a guy in the middle. And I love that. And again, this is just my taste, my personal taste. I don't so much enjoy... When I open up a 5e book and there's a very house style where it was all done with a digital palette knife. Hmm. I mean, it's, it's, it's good art. It's, it's very good art and it's very great. It's just not what I want to do yeah. in my stuff. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I will say uh, as clean as, you know, having a unif quote unquote uniform art style where everything looks the same can be. There's something that, like you said, strikes at the heart of what this uh, industry, what this hobby is. When you open a book like that or like Levi Combs' Phylactery or, you know, any of these amazing books that we have kind of out of this OSR movement that's been going on for all this time. And you see all of these different art styles that at first brush don't really mix but you know as they come together and form this work that is you know the the game that you're reading they they mix in that they remind people of what this hobby has always been this mishmash of styles into one you know stew of creativity and so you know stuff like that always fascinates me uh so so i'm glad that you know I'm glad that that's not just me, that, you know, this is something that's been going on forever because, I, I mean, I've, I've only been into role-playing games for six years now at most. Uh, so seeing that this is just history repeating itself is, is very heartening to me. Well, I mean, you could compare it to anything. Comic books, indie bands, you know, movies. Like, I just, I mean... I never met anybody. I was on the same, uh, you know, like this before I met Levi. 
who's very focused on the grindhouse thing because that's there's a there's a rawness and there's an energy to that and i love everything that planet x and levi does and plus um i i didn't steal him because he still uses him but that's how i got ed bickford oh, yeah. I, I i was just you know like anybody else i pledged for a planet x background uh planet x games kickstarter and got what i got and i'm flipping through it i'm like okay who's that artist i, I need that guy have you have you given any thought to uh, to uh, trying to steal Adrian for for anything in the future? I, excuse me, uh, I love Adrian's work, and I and I uh, worked with him uh, kind of in concert with Casey when I was a partner at Frog God Games. I art directed some cover work that he did, both for Frog Gods and not for Frog Gods, and um, I love his work. Um, I just haven't gotten around to him yet for Scientific Barbarian. Yeah, he his stuff always impresses me, and he he's a young guy like myself. He's probably even a little bit younger than I am. Uh, I I don't remember how old he is, but I love uh, the the stuff that he does, and you know, well, like you see his covers, and you know he's uber talented, and then you find out how old he is now. I'm gonna guess probably nineteen or twenty, and then you go, oh, holy crap! Well, all right, what's he gonna be? You know, in ten years, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, he he would be someone that I'd be interested to have a conversation with, and then Ed, obviously, Ed's actually going to be on next week. So uh, it's it's seeing his stuff is always so interesting, and the way it's it's a joke now amongst people who know Ed's work, but just the way he draws machinery and robots is second to none. Well, the uh, if you go to the Kickstarter right now and see the cover for issue number three, it's a big Ed. But- preferred robot art and the art came first i saw the art and said i want to buy that and then i wrote a whole adventure around it so it was a case of, and i and this is my favorite thing to do is is a, a more collaborative give and take uh, relationship between writer and artist you know so i went off to like the old pulp days where they would just have a cover painting for fantastic adventures and slam it down at a writer's desk and go give me you know 50 pages about that art i saw it's one of Ed's giant robot pulp covers and said, okay, I want that. And I'm going to write a whole adventure around it. Hmm. Absolutely. And that's, I mean, that's something that a lot of people, uh, a lot of people in RPGs seem to kind of, you know, get that inspiration from just seeing a single image. I know, you know, like Shane Hensley saw the Brom picture of the, uh, the Confederate vampire. And that's kind of where Deadlands came from. And I know, like, I've seen single images of things and inspired entire campaigns uh, from that. So, yeah, that, that there, there's something to seeing just one image and people with kind of the RPG brain, uh, for lack of a better term, will go, there's a whole world in here, and I can find it, and I can, you know, build it out of just what I see here. Uh, so, you know, hearing stuff like that is always cool. I love working with uh, both writers and artists, but I have a, I think I, it's weird. I don't know how to say what I want to say. I started out as an artist and I didn't find out I could write until much later in my life uh, when I uh, did a tour duty at the student newspaper at the University of Louisville and then ended up running it. Um, That's when I discovered I could write. So there was a point like in Marvin the Mage, there's, there's a dragon that no one will ever see it. I still have it on my hard drive. There's a Marvin the Mage pitch 
uh, me and a, a buddy of mine named Perry Cooper did in the mid eighties where we tried to get dragon and Roger Moore turned it down. And I look at it now and he was right. He should have. And it's written by Perry Cooper art by Jim Wampler, because at that point I didn't have enough confidence in myself to write my own cartoon characters. Hmm. So now I'm in a position where I'm working as an editor with writers and an art director with other artists. And I, I, I adore it. Uh, because Ed and I talk the same language and uh, there's uh, another guy who's uh, sort of on the polymath side like me, Dan Smith. I love working with Dan Smith because Dan is a, a, a gifted artist and was the house style guy for Steve Jackson games back in the GURPS days. Like, I don't know, a third of the art was Dan, but he's also a game designer and he's also a writer. So we can trade ideas back and forth to where you get at the end you're not sure whose idea it is so we just say okay we'll share this does that make sense yeah absolutely kind of guy you can just say okay i want a new strip go create <laughs> one and off he goes and 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 you know dan it would be like facebook message 30 minutes later here's the completed strip and you're like okay whoa 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 you know that issue's not till three months from now <laughs> awesome well like we mentioned, you know, there, there's, we're, we're in the final 48 hours. This uh, campaign for Scientific Barbarian is going to end uh, on Wednesday morning. Uh, once this wraps up... Uh, Come join yeah. us, because, I mean, even with shipping, it's 20 bucks. You can't get a pizza to your house for 20 bucks, and you'll get to keep this longer than the pizza. Yeah, absolutely. And there's all kinds of cool stuff in here. But, you know, once, once the campaign... Uh, wraps up if if you are ready to kind of talk about you know what's what's gonna be next for mud puppy beyond this uh you know what what's kind of the next project for you i can't i mean there is there you know there's just like a software company there's a whole plan with a path and i can't discuss most of it but uh it'll 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 be scientific barbarian for a while um because i'm gonna keep doing these as long as uh you know, it remains popular and right now it's growing like a weed. So, um, but, uh, there will be a couple of, uh, expanded versions of a couple of adventures that appear in the magazine that will come out, uh, either at the end of this year, or beginning of next year as full modules. Um, just to, for the people who buy the magazine and don't read the adventure, didn't a, a player in my game this weekend called, I, I told him I was as for table sw virtual table swag. I was sending them scientific barbarian number one because it had the adventure they just played, and he had it already. And he's like, I didn't know there was adventure in that. So, <laughs> a couple of a couple of out and out modules in a more standard eight and a half by eleven saddle stitch, and then I've got a couple of uh, whole RPG games that I'm working on uh, uh, a superhero game and a game I can't talk about. Awesome. You know, somewhere in the mysterious future, I'll figure out a way to publish those. Absolutely. I mean, the the superhero game. As a comic book fan, I you know I love stuff like that. So superhero games are always fun to see, and it's always interesting to to see how different people interpret uh, turning what we see in comic books and what we see in cartoons and stuff like that into what we see on tabletop. So, you know, stuff like that's always fascinating to me. Well, here's a way I can discuss the future projects. I, I, uh, I, I started the superhero game uh, several years ago, and at one point Frog Games was actually going to publish it. 
But uh, what happened is I got really ambitious and decided I'm going to write the game that fixes everything I think is broken in all other superhero games. Uh, came up with a non-D20 uh, game engine that works. I've play-tested it. It works great. And then started bolting the superhero, the superpowers onto it. And I am one of those people that sometimes has to learn things the hard way. I slammed into all those problems I was going to solve, and I haven't solved them yet. So the next game for me will be that same game engine in a new game. Work, work, work all the work all the kinks out in a an, an easier to understand genre, and then go back to the superheroes and see if I can figure out how to fix the things I think are broken. Hmm. Now, I just have to ask: is uh, is one of the problems that you run into when designing a superhero game? Uh, you've got someone at the table who wants to be Superman or Thor, and then you've got someone else at the table who wants to be Batman and the Punisher, and you want both of them to feel like they're having the same amount of a good time. Is that is that one of the major issues that you run into? Sure, sure. The 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 the, the problems with the genre for role playing games are are nearly endless. That's a big one. Um, another one is. Uh, how to handle the uh, wild variance in the actual powers. You know, like in D&D, we've just got the spells as written. They're stacked in new levels. But how do you systematize that? And the, I, I, I sound like I think every other superhero game is broken. They're not. Um, you know, they're, they, they've taken different tacks, and you can't argue with the metrics of success. Mutants and Masterminds um, is a very D20 approach to it. And I adore that the same guy... Kinnison is the last name. I can't. Steve. Steve Kinnison. Steve. Steve Kinnison. Yeah. Also wrote Icons, which is the which is a, a completely diametrically opposed way to do it. it. More, I don't. It's not a storytelling game, but more abstracted. Hmm. And uh, old Mar Marvel superhero game TSR had you know in the middle there with the phase rip system. Hmm. You know, I've got a creative ego too. I looked at all that and decided I can do it better. I can have my cake eat it too, and I haven't gotten there yet. Hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, and I mean, I, I love Mutants and Masterminds. I, I love Savage Worlds, which is good for a certain type of superhero game. Um, but, but yeah, like e each system has its trade-offs, and so it'll be, it'll be cool to, uh, to see kind of how you uh, look to address these issues and, and how, uh, you know, things turn out with your, uh, your system here. So, yeah, that, I mean, I'm excited for that. We've play tested it, and, and as far as the play test went, they went well. But that's you know, with they're your rules and you're running them. I mean, you can you can you can fudge a lot of that. I need to do better. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Cool. So, um, you know, just as as we're kind of you know wrapping things up here, um, what I like to do is is give everyone some time at the end to discuss any projects they have coming up or anything like that that they want to plug. Obviously, uh, Scientific Barbarian number three is on Kickstarter right now. I'll put the link in the uh, description for this once it goes up on uh, YouTube and, and Podcatchers so that you guys can jump on this. Have that up tomorrow, a day early, so you guys can get in on the action here. Um, but other than that, uh, what else... Uh, do you want to plug or anything like that? Is there is there anything else you want to shout out here? I I am so much more comfortable being the interviewer than the interviewee, and I'm not. Uh, you wouldn't. 
I'm not the best at self-promoting, or at least that's what my brother tells me. Uh, I, I'm, I'm a co-host uh, also besides the Mud Puppy Games, and there's a there's a website too. If you, you I mean you can get the first and second issue of Scientific Barbarian at a backer only price through this Kickstarter, but you can also just go straight to the web store and order them. And and if you're a PDF person, uh, straight from Drive Through RPG, I'm a very fortunate to be a co-host with three very good friends on the Safe for Half podcast where we just talk about any old game we want to. Um, from the sublime to the I never I never even heard of that and I'm an old guy uh, with uh, Liz and Mike Stewart and Cor- Corbett Kirkley and the saferhalf.com uh, is where you can go find that uh, at, past that I, I'll get excited and start talking about all of the cool stuff my friends are doing like you know Levi's Phylactery 3 and the adventure Skeeter Green's writing Crypt of the Science Wizard I'm into, I'm into that Joe Good, uh, Goodman, Goodman Games just did a whole 5e book everybody went crazy with and unfortunately the Kickstarter's over now but the book will eventually be for sale that's a dual version you can get DCC version or a 5e version but the thing if you're a 5e player and you come play a DCC style adventure you're in for a treat hmm. absolutely that's that's something I'm looking forward to doing this June uh, you know, just kind of getting in on on DCC and and MCC, uh, you know, in in North Texas, which unfortunately you you won't be in attendance this year. Um, but you know, I, I I'm excited to you know try some of these systems that I've heard so much about. Uh, you know, just everyone look everyone knows fifth edition. Everyone loves playing it. I love fifth edition. It's easy to run. It's easy to get everyone to play, but sometimes, uh, you know, just wanting to try new things, uh, is, well, is what I crave these days. You know what? When we were kids, we just played whatever new came out next mm-hmm. with no prejudice. I mean, sure. We always came back to D and D and, uh, one of the biggest reasons mutant crawl classics happened was because the game store in cincinnati called gateway games and more is where it happened and todd bunn my friend that runs that game store has put the lie to all edition wars because the manner in which he runs his store the players in my group that ranged from mid-20s up to our my age um and and occasional kids um, would play Dungeon Crawl Classics on Friday, Call of Cthulhu on Friday, Saturday was Pathfinder Day, and Sundays were old school D&D. The same crew would play it all like we did back when we were kids. Hmm. So, I mean, you know, that's the whole point of a convention. Go try it all. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And you couldn't find a better one than North Texas Con. Have you been before? This is my first time. You're going to love it. You're absolutely going to love it. Uh, there was a time where North Texas Con, RPG Con, Gary Con, and Game Hole Con were all about the size North Texas Con still is because uh, Doug Ray and Mike Battlotto decided to cap it. Now those other two conventions have become giant. Mm-hmm. But North Texas Con, like, you can't swing a dead kobold without hitting an old TSR guy. They'll be literally every third person you run into in the lobby and all kinds of gaming, role-playing gaming going from, you know, 5e through really arcane stuff. You could find a first edition game world game at that con. Absolutely. Yeah. And so many of the people that I've had on the show, just because, you know, I've gone through the whole frog God roster and, you know, Levi's been on the show several times and Skeeter's been on so many people that I, have talked to 
throughout the course of doing this show will be there, and I've never met any of these people in real life, so it'll be cool to connect with, you know, people that I've had conversations with face-to-face and play in games with them, uh, which... Even I mean, more that's so how I, than... Skeeter, and I, Skeeter and I got to be friends. I met him at a North Texas con. Then together we talked to uh, this 21-year-old kid and his wife from Alaska into coming to their very first game convention ever. And that was Keelan and uh, Samantha Halverson. And uh, now they're both in the industry doing art. Sweet. From a North Texas con two or three years ago. Absolutely. Yeah, so that's... Sorry, I'm not going to be at this one, even though the vaccine's out there and I've got it. I'm not, I'm not up to dealing with the airport yet. All good. I'll it's be there good. next year. Absolutely. And if all goes well, uh, I will be too, because, you know, this, everyone I, I love from this community is, is going to be there. So, you know, why not? Why not Ryan from Rolling Bones as well? Maybe next year I'll get the courage up to actually run something there. <laughs> well, you know, um, I don't mean to laugh, but, you know, I, uh, how long have I been running games? And every single game at every single convention, I have to go outside and, you know, meditate and have a smoke and get caffeined up because I get like stage fright. Mm-hmm. You know, it, you just got to walk past that. And mm-hmm. it's the it's the same thing. Yeah, my- Unless you get a cowboy, then you just <laughs> gently keep the cowboy on the leash until the very end, then cut him loose. Mm-hmm. My whole thing is I want to stick with the uh, the old school nature of North Texas RPG Con and the only old school uh, game from like, you know, back in the days that a lot of people long for at North Texas. The only game that I'm familiar with is the James Bond role playing game. Uh, I don't quite know it well enough to run something in it, though, so that's. I want to give myself some time to familiarize myself with those rules and then uh, turn that loose on someone. Well, that'd be awesome. And you could, uh, I mean, when the pandemic's not a factor, you could fill up a table of players to play that anytime in North Texas Con. That's exactly the kind of old games they like to run down there. And there's there's a great modern version of it called Classified uh, that's just a reprint with all the copyrighted stuff sanded off. So, um Oh, that's nice. Like how you can still get phase rip. It's just not going to have Spider-Man and Captain America in it now. Absolutely. Yeah, well, you so have a good time down there. I, I will. I, I will have a good time for the both of us. And, uh, you know, hopefully it'll be a, a big convention for me for years to come. Because I've, conven- I've missed conventions almost more than anything just this, this past year. Uh, not getting to you know be amongst my people has uh, has been a big thing. <laughs> I am so severely introverted that sadly I was built for this past year we just had. I'm fine. People can stay six feet away from me until the heat death of the universe. I'll be great. But uh, these virtual con games and panel discussions suddenly I'm seeing the faces that I miss and forgot I miss. So. Mm-hmm. There's nothing like in-person gaming and, and, and hanging with your tribe. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, guys, that is going to do it for tonight's episode of Rolling Bones. Uh, Jim, it's been great to connect with you and, uh, you know, hear a little bit about what you're working on. Uh, you know, anytime you've got something that you want to talk about, you know, once the superhero game's up and running or, or anything 
between now and then, uh, you're always welcome back on Rolling Bones. Well, thank you. It was very nice to meet you, and thank you for having me on. And we have to stay in touch now because I want to hear how your first North Texas RPG Con went. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, guys, that is going to be it for this week as far as programming goes. Next week, hopefully I will have the new uh, capture card for an actual painting stream uh, because Lord knows the past four that I've tried have just been disasters. Uh, so hopefully we'll have that. And also, next week, uh, the the Master of Robots himself, Ed Bickford, will be on Rolling Bones. Um, by his own admission, this is his first time doing a show uh, where he is primarily an RPG artist. So it'll be a lot of fun to talk about what brought him to the table, so to speak. And, uh, you know, talk all about the work he's been doing with, with people like Jim and Levi and, uh, you know, how he has found his home in the RPG world. So I'm looking forward to it. I hope you guys are too. So until then, whether you rolled a one or a 20, I'm so glad that you rolled your bones with me, (laughs) Ryan Howard, and I'll see you next time.